health, wealth and happiness, three rather important things in our lives that the coronavirus has not only focused our attention on, but at times forced us to choose between. Should we stay locked down for the sake of our health, for example, but watch our wealth diminish as the economy crumbles all around us? Or should we accept greater chances of illnesses, even deaths, in order to keep jobs and businesses going? And what effect would either option have on our mental well-being in the long term? Well, Graham Looms, Professor of Economics and Behavioural Science here at Warwick Business School, has studied the trade-offs we all make in our everyday lives and has concluded that in the present emergency, the government could have been clearer and more candid in its presentation of the balance of risks and benefits involved. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the pandemic's having on both individuals and society, and on how your organisations can survive it, he'll be telling us why. I spoke to Professor Looms via a Zoom link and asked him first how COVID-19 has changed the way we balance risk and benefit in these unprecedented times. Well, I guess that because things happened so fast initially and because it was such an unfamiliar situation and because it's the kind of illness where my behaviour can impact on you, so it's not just me thinking about trading off my risks against my benefits, but I also, my behaviour is affecting other people's welfare, then you can understand that governments moved very fast and a sort of a formal cost-benefit analysis wasn't really on the cards. But now I guess that we're in a position, having reached where we are, where we're thinking about various measures to reduce the lockdown, to get a little bit closer, edge a bit closer to normality. And we need to think about every time we relax one of the restrictions, if that raises the risk, what benefits are we getting in return? So we've got the risk-benefit trade-offs of relaxing the restrictions and improving our economic and social welfare. Well, those are the considerations governments in general have to make. Um, Let's look at your particular criticism at the moment, though, which focuses on the decision mid-June 2020 to introduce a package of measures to ease the lockdown, and in particular to relax the two-metre rule to one-metre-plus, subject, crucially, to mitigation measures, hand sanitizers, masks, visors, screens, etc., which it was claimed, in combination with each other, made the one-metre rule, quote, broadly equivalent, in effect, to the two-metre rule. Could you explain why this concerned you? Yes, I mean, uh, I want to make a distinction here. I'm not opposed to the new package of measures. In fact, I think that the new package of measures are entirely justifiable, and I would support them. They line up with what I think is the right thing to be doing, which is to be restoring to people their jobs, their incomes, a bit more freedom of movement, helping to get children and students back to school and back to college, 
helping to give people something a bit closer to their normal social lives. And I think all of those benefits are worth the extra risks that are liable to accompany them. That's my view. And I think they would pass the cost-benefit analysis if it were done on these new measures. What I've been critical of is that I think that the change in the risk that will accompany these new measures has been understated. That at the press briefing on the 23rd of June, last Tuesday, as it is, as we sit here now, not only the Prime Minister was talking in terms of the new risks after you've reduced two metres to one metre with mitigating measures, the new risk has been broadly equivalent to the old risk, but also the chief scientist and the chief medical officer were using the same terminology and they were referring to research done by the Environment and Modelling Group of SAGE. And I've read those papers and I don't see any evidence in those papers that the mitigating measures will completely offset the extra risk of going from two metres to one metre in indoor environments, work, school, college, people's homes, pubs, restaurants, etc. My take on it is that the truth is that the risks will be increased. But I do think that those are increases in risks which we should be prepared to take as a society in order to get the benefits for the tens of millions of people who will benefit from easing the lockdown. I just think that it's wrong to suggest that there isn't an extra downside in terms of higher risks and that everything on that side is about the same under the new arrangements as it was under the old arrangements. I don't believe that that's true. I believe that there will be more deaths and there will be more serious illnesses and they will affect older and more vulnerable people, even though I think that when you put those alongside the benefits, it's a justifiable move. And I think that governments and their advisors should be upfront and tell the truth. There's an Ipsos Mori report from 2019 called Trust the Truth. And they did a survey about a lot of things, but one of the things they did was to look at which professions are trusted and which are not. Nobody, I think, will be surprised to find that politicians come at the very bottom, the most untrustworthy profession that was listed in the survey. Doctors and scientists come at the very top, places one and two. People trust them. People don't trust politicians. And that's presumably why the politicians have had scientists and doctors on the platform along, alongside them during the press briefings. And I think that the scientists need to be telling people what they think is the best estimate acknowledging all of the uncertainties, the best estimate of the situation as far as the risks are concerned. And I sensed at that Tuesday briefing, I might be wrong, I'd be happy 
if Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty were to explain in detail how they arrived at their conclusion that the, after the one meter distance was mitigated, that the risk would end up being about the same, broadly similar, suggesting that there was no extra downside risk and avoiding dodging, in my opinion, dodging the trade-off that we're really facing, which is there are gonna be more people dying and getting seriously ill. Do we think it's worth it? Many of us do. And by the normal cost-benefit analysis, it would be acceptable. But let's not understate the true risks, because if the true risks are understated, and if people trust the scientists that the risks are um, lower than I think they really are, then they may behave less cautiously and less carefully than perhaps the true risks would justify. And so, then they'll get blamed because it'll somehow be their fault for not being as careful as they should have been. So do you think the government's being disingenuous when it uses a phrase like, we're following the science? Well, I don't know for sure what uh, the scientists have said to the politicians. I only know what I read in the two documents that were posted on the government's websites from the Environment and Modelling Group of SAGE. And I can't myself see how you can come to the conclusion that Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty appear to be endorsing last Tuesday, which was that after the new measures are put into effect, there will on balance overall be no net change in the risks that people are facing in those environments. I, I can't see how they arrived at those decisions and those documents do not appear to reach that conclusion. But isn't part of the problem that the science, whatever it is, sometimes seems contradictory? Imperial academics disagreeing with Oxford academics, for example, or one modeler here differing from another modeler there. I mean, is the science absolute? No, no, of course it isn't. I mean, there, there are very considerable uncertainties. There are a lot of uncertainties in science, even in situations where we have huge amounts of data. But in these cases, we have relatively few good data sets to support the um, judgment of how good the different mitigating measures are. An example of the uncertainties are that in that report, it suggests that the effect of just the change in distance from two meter to one meter on its own, if you were just to separate it from everything else, would be to double the risk at the low end of the estimates or to multiply the risk by 10 times at the high end of the estimates. And of course, those are huge differences. But if you were to take, uh, let's say, the most optimistic view that it would only double the risk, then you've got to be able to show reasons or give arguments, and it may only be a matter of judgment, but to give arguments to suggest how the mitigating measures would offset completely the doubling of the risk that's due to the change in distance. And when you look at what the document says, and if I can, I'll quote from that document, 
it says, given the very recent origin of this novel virus, very few engineering or environmental mitigation measures have strong evidence to support their effectiveness. That's what the document actually says. Now, it could be that even though we can't identify the benefits because we don't have good enough data, it could be that they will turn out to be effective. And so what the report does is it asks 14 members of the group to kind of give their best judgments. But their best judgments appear to express very limited confidence in most of the mitigation measures other than one or two which are already in place anyway. So we won't get too much extra benefit from them. So although you know nobody knows for sure, I think it is possible to give perhaps a stronger message about the greater likelihood that there will be an increase in risk overall as a result of this package of measures. I mean, do you think, again, it comes down to being upfront with the public, being honest about what we know and, crucially, what we don't know? Well, it might be the case that when the politicians look at the balance of the benefits against the extra risks, they may say to themselves, as I personally would be inclined to say, the benefits are so great relative to the extra losses, although there will be some, but the balance is such that we should go ahead with these measures. These measures will be on balance an improvement for the majority of people in society, and we should do them. That may be what the conclusion that they've reached themselves. And then it comes to the fact that they're going to have to, if they're being completely transparently honest, they're going to have to say to people, yes, but there will be losses. This will cause at least some people to die earlier than they would otherwise. And it will cause there to be an uptick in illnesses and extra pressures although probably not dramatically extra, on the NHS. And they think, I, I don't really want to be saying that. I, I, I think the decision is the right one, and I want to minimise the flack that I'm going to get from people if I actually come up front and say these things. I'm a politician. I don't like bad news. I'm going to wave my hands and use phrases like broadly equivalent because the scientific evidence is not so strong as to be able to say this definitely surely will increase risk by an amount x and so the politicians to some extent are taking advantage of the lack of data and the uncertainties that surround these issues to send a message which suits them, is comfortable for them, avoids a difficult situation for them, but I think it's a disservice to the population because it's understating the extent of the risks involved and it doesn't allow people to make judgments on the basis of better information and better judgments, tr more true 
idea of the real risks. But might part of the problem lie with us, the public, in that we can't, as Elliot put it, bear very much reality. We don't like bad news either. We don't like talking about death and disease and risk. We simply can't handle that kind of vocabulary. Well, I think we can handle that kind of vocabulary. And I certainly notice when I talk to people of my slightly older generation that they they do think in those terms they think i haven't got an infinite amount of time left and i have to think about the way that i use my time and what my priorities are and people when they go to hospital when they're told that they've got an illness of some kind will often be thinking in those circumstances about, well, what are the risks if I have different kinds of treatments? Now, it's very difficult to know precisely what the risks are. Some people can make decisions and some people do not to have certain sorts of treatment because it will impact adversely on the quality of their lives. They'd rather live in a better quality of life for a shorter period of time than perhaps drag it out for longer at the cost of unpleasant side effects from the treatments they're receiving. So I think people can engage with these things, but it's true that people don't like to think about them. It's not the sort of, you know, in the same way that people put off writing their wills. It's not a pleasant thing to be thinking about, but I think people can engage with it, and I think they do. So in your view, openness and candour are preconditions for dealing with the pandemic effectively? Yes, I think it's very important. I mean, I... I don't say that talking about probability and risk is easy, but I do think that when politicians or scientists, advisors to the government are giving risk messages to the population, they've got to try as far as they possibly can in amongst all of the uncertainties to give the best information they can and allow people to understand as well as they can what the real risks and the trade-offs are. Now, as you say, we all make these trade-offs in our personal lives. All of us want to keep healthy, for example, but some of us are prepared to put our health at risk by going rock climbing, say, or hang gliding. But in what ways are governments making these sorts of trade-offs now on our behalf? Well, what governments are doing is they're dealing with different sections of the population some of whom are the gainers, relatively speaking, and others of whom may be the losers, relatively speaking. So if there's an increase in the COVID infection rates in the next few weeks, partly as a result of the lockdown and people's changes of behaviour, the younger people are very likely to experience only minor health problems by comparison with older people. On the other hand, the younger people will get many of the benefits because maybe they'll be able to go back to school or resume their training or get their jobs back, get their social lives back. Um, Older people who perhaps have stopped working and are not in the same position as far as uh, the economic issues are concerned, they're the ones who are perhaps much more likely to be impacted in terms of serious illness and earlier deaths than would otherwise have been the case. So a government's job, as opposed to an individual, is to form a view 
about how you balance the interests of different sectors of society, the gains and the losses that may be different according to their age and position in the society. Well, this is probably the moment to bring in the so-called quality-adjusted life year. Could you just explain what this is and how a government uses it in normal circumstances? Okay, well, in normal circumstances, quality-adjusted life years, or qualies as they're known for short, are used in the healthcare system. So that, for example, if a pharmaceutical company is proposing that the NHS should adopt a new drug to treat some illness, say cancer, they have to uh, run trials to try and establish how much this new drug will improve the quality of life of the people who receive it and to what extent it may also increase the length of their remaining life. And a quality-adjusted life year tries to put those two things together and says, supposing that this new drug will increase somebody's life by a couple of years and will improve the quality of their life by 15 or 20 percent, then put those things together and try and find out, try and estimate what that's equal to in terms of one year in full health. And that would be your quality adjusted life year. And then they'd say, well, if this new treatment can do better than the existing treatments, can add some qualities to people's lives if they're receiving the treatment, then how much is that worth in terms of the extra costs that the NHS would bear? So that's the decision that's being made as far as the cost per quality or the value of new treatments judged in terms of cost per quality is concerned. And in the present emergency, is it particularly important to get that quality figure right? Well, if you try and do the same kind of analysis as far as the lockdown is concerned, then you can see that if moving from the original policy, which was to try and mitigate the spread of the illness, to the much stronger policy of locking down and trying to suppress the illness, one of the things that was said was that this would reduce the numbers of deaths that were expected from perhaps a quarter of a million down to, originally they thought about 20,000, although now it turns out the figure is more like 50,000. But that would prevent a number of 200,000, let's say, deaths of people who would have lost a number of years of life, which would have had a certain quality. And so you could have done a sum which would have looked at the losses that would have been incurred and by locking down and preventing those losses you may think that you've gained quality adjusted life years for a couple of hundred thousand people in the population and then the question would be what are the economic costs of that intervention and economic costs of course are things like the substantial drop in the gross domestic product there are other costs as well which are the costs to people's well-being of being locked up, of being cooped up perhaps for many people in small flats, of losing their jobs, of all of the anxieties that surround that and the psychological illnesses that may result. So 
there are some health impacts of the lockdown that are adverse, but probably the primary impacts are the economic impacts. But can a quali deal with three very different things? I mean, not only health and wealth, uh, health versus the economy, but also that much less quantifiable thing called mental well-being, happiness to you and me. I mean, can a government factor in those things into its stats and tables? Well, it can. I mean, qualies have a dimension as they currently exist, which is a sort of psychological or psychiatric element to people's health. It's usually measured in terms of anxiety and depression. And well-being or happiness as such doesn't feature in the current way that qualies are organised. You might nevertheless imagine that you could adjust the quality of life to some extent according to drops in people's reported levels of well-being or happiness. And certainly one of the things that seems to have happened in the COVID experience of lockdown is that people's self-reported well-being or happiness, life satisfaction, whatever you might call it, has gone down by about one point on a 10-point scale compared with this time last year. That seems to be the kind of impact that it's made. For some people, it will have made a much bigger impact on their well-being and unhappiness than that. For other people, it may not have made very much difference. Some people may even be slightly happier not going to work, not going on the usual commute, being able to get out on their bikes, having less traffic on the roads. But the impacts are very different across different sections of the population and often people whose job security is most uncertain, who are the least well-paid people, they'll be the people whose well-being and happiness is most greatly impacted by the lockdown and that ought to be factored in. Qualies are not very good at, at dealing with that. There's something else that qualies are not very good at, if I can go on to that. And it's the idea of the value of a person's life independent of how many years they've got left. Older people may only have five or six years left, whereas younger people may have 75 or 80 years left. But the question is, do you then say, well, these old people, because they've only got five or six years life left in them, somehow or other deserve to be given very much less weight than people with a 75 or 80 year life expectancy, especially if they're vulnerable, especially if they're infirm, especially if they're already disadvantaged. And one of the things that's emerged, I think, especially because of the focus on so-called saving lives, but on the numbers of deaths, is that society is placing considerable weight on protecting people who are elderly and vulnerable and that isn't very well captured in the ordinary quality calculations. Well, leaving qualies to one side and moving to more recent events, and I'm thinking here of mass gatherings in London, Bristol and elsewhere, and in particular the mass exodus to the seaside in the hot weather, all in defiance of the social distancing rules. As a behavioural scientist, do you think governments, in the end, can control people's behaviour effectively? 
Well, I don't think that, um, I, I mean, you know, some people I think have been surprised by the extent to which so many millions of people complied so well with what were regarded, I think, or would have been regarded six months ago as almost unimaginably draconian measures by the state, by the government, to shut down people's personal freedoms. And I think people did take seriously the messages then. I think that they've partly become fatigued by the pressures that they've been under, the impacts on their lives and the fears that they have about not losing their jobs or uh, not being able to pay their rents or children losing too much time uh, out of their education. And because many, especially younger people, are not seeing the uh, impact of the disease in terms of people that they know or in, even in terms of their own, their own suffering from the, the disease, then they're inclined to think, well, I don't know, I, I'm paying a huge price for this, but I can't see what benefit I'm getting out of it. And what they see, to some extent, are the the stats portrayed and people's photographs put up and news stories about particular individuals, but it doesn't always ring true to their own experience. We all want good news. None of us want bad news. Going back to what we were saying at the beginning, we don't like to think about our own deaths or illnesses and write our wills and so on. We, we want good news. And so when there's a little bit of good news that appears to be given, saying, well, we can do these changes and it'll leave the overall risks much the same, then it's not really so surprising that people jump at that and think, okay, good, now I can get back to something closer to normality. And because, there's, because the risks have been glossed over, they're even more likely to hear what they want to hear in those messages and to act accordingly and to use the opportunity to get out of their houses and get some sunshine, even though it happens to be my personal idea of a nightmare to be uh, amongst uh, hundreds of thousands of people on Bournemouth Beach with um, one toilet between every 10,000. So finally, what do you think the legacy of the COVID pandemic will be on the way, as it were, we recalibrate our behaviour, balancing risks and benefits, and especially on how in the future we'll rebalance our health, wealth and happiness scales? I think that if you were to try and do a retrospective cost-benefit analysis of the lockdown measures, of the health gains from lockdown compared with the economic costs of lockdown, what it would tell you is that if you were to try and tease out from that the implicit value that was being placed on people's health, it would be much higher than the numbers which have been regularly used by governments. So the figure would be considerably greater in order to make the costs and benefits of lockdown balance, you'd have to use a much higher value for people's health. And one of the things that might emerge from this, but I'm not really holding my breath, is that people may say, we 
place a much higher value on health, on the health service and on social care. I think that's been a big focus of what's gone on through this COVID experience. Those areas have been run down, relatively speaking, have been starved of resources for many, many years. And that's out of tune with what we members of society believe are the values and priorities that we'd like to see. So it may be that there'll, there'll be some reconsideration of the values that the population place on health and safety, and they might want to put more resources into health and social care than has been the case so far. So it might change the numbers that are being used in order to judge the appropriate level of trade-off. Graham, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Graham Looms, Professor of Economics and Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast. And these podcasts will shortly be expanded to include a Core Insights series on behavioural science, coming soon.